And this Go. ball in the air, deep right center Go. field. Two-run home run, Trevor Story. Way back, Myers, he'll watch it go Chuck Nasty. Two-run home run, David Dahl. And Nolan drives this high in the air, deep left field. Take a good look, you won't see it for long. I don't want to lose your love tonight. Welcome in to the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by Mile High Green Cross. Sign up for their loyalty program and receive 20% off your entire purchase once per month. I'm your host, Drew Creaseman. With me on this one is our beat writer, Patrick Lyons. I was hoping maybe we could get uh, my mother back on. We'll see whether or not that fully works out or not, because we are continuing along with our conversation of the PBS documentary by Ken Burns simply titled Baseball. We've reached the sixth inning uh, covering uh, the 1940s, essentially a very happening decade, if I may say, if I may use a sort of a word of the times, but not as it was used. Uh, and uh, a lot went on is what I'm trying to say here. We, this is, of course, the decade where we get to tell the story of Jackie Robinson uh, the, there's uh, the Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio emergence. We've got the ultimate death of Babe Ruth and uh, a lot of other interesting, uh, the, the rise of uh, professional women's baseball, uh, a lot of pretty great stuff. This was one of my favorite episodes so far. Patrick, what about you? Yeah, this definitely was uh, a lot more enjoyable one. I, I enjoyed Shadow Ball, the, the fifth inning probably the most so far, and, and that could have had something to do with it coming off the heels of the fourth inning, a national heirloom completely about Babe Ruth. So five was a breath of fresh air, but six, I think really, you know, kind of getting, you know, to your point or, or to touch on how you might be feeling about this, it really, you know, discusses the the superstars that, you know, maybe our, our parents' generation grew up hearing about and feeling fondly about. And we know, you know, Mickey Mantle was, was all of our parents' heroes uh, when they were younger, but the ones right before that, their older siblings or the ones that their parents talked a lot about were those guys, like you mentioned, Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. So I, I think it, there's actually a lot of ground that does get covered here uh, in the 1940s in an era in which so much happens, but it really starts to help dictate the, the the generations and the decades that come right after. Yeah, there was someone who was speaking. It might have been Doris Kearns Goodwin, who my mother texted me in the middle of it. I love her. Um, me too. We, we've, <laughs> yeah, we've always we've always loved Doris Kearns Goodwin. Phenomenal uh, historian on American presidents, also by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but she knows her baseball, and uh, she's written many books about baseball as well. And. I think it was her who made the, that sort of comment about how um, it, it was her, her father's hero uh, was Jackie Robinson and how that had sort of made it natural for her as a young person jumping 
I guess all the way into that. We'll, we'll pull out and we're, we're going to have all kinds of things to talk about. So I didn't want to dive right into the Jackie Robinson story and all the, uh, you know, heaviness that comes with that. But it made that point of like those, they can feel so far away. Uh, some of these guys, you know, Christy Mathewson, who was born in like 19 or 1890 or so, you know, stuff like that. You know, you're, you're going way back uh, for some of these guys, but now we're talking about your grandfather's baseball players, basically. And uh, it feels a little bit more real. It feels a little bit more tangible. I tweeted out during the episode, of course, of the Joe DiMaggio streak. We all know uh, the, the number 56, but I always forget the other one, that he didn't just have the 56, that he went another 16 games after that. So he hit safely in 72 of 73 games. And I said, you know, if this had happened earlier in baseball, I might not have believed it. If this hadn't happened at a time when there was like radio and enough people were going to the games that I could say this wasn't made up, I never would have believed a person could do that. It really hasn't been approached. I don't think anyone's hit even a 40 game hit streak since, you know, Pete Rose, I think perhaps maybe in, in 1980 or late seventies. So it's it's never really been touched upon. I I want to give a shout out to my my father in law because we had a conversation about Joe DiMaggio, who's a lifelong Yankees fan, and talking about how much luck could possibly be involved in any hit streak. Right? There's going to be times in which you only get one hit. So theoretically, if you go one for four every day for thirty games, which is a great hitting streak. 30 games is fantastic and it's still pretty rare. You could have a 250 batting average during that time. And right. so I, I went back and, and tried to find, you know, the batting averages of a lot of the guys that, you know, had 35 or more. And for the most part, they were, I, I think there was at least one person who was maybe only hitting 333 uh, for their average. But during the course of DiMaggio's 56 game hit streak, he did average 408 during that time, which is an interesting figure because we'll go back and forth between DiMaggio and Williams, but 408 is an interesting figure because we know Ted Williams hit 407 for the entire season. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Since we're on the streak and we're already diving into it, let's just stay here for a moment. You know, this has always been one of those to me that felt a little bit more achievable, and you got into some of the reasons why. Uh, you know, there, there is an element, I'm not saying that it was lucky that Joe DiMaggio did what he did by any means, but there is, there's a little bit of an element of randomness to it, even to to the way it ended where it's just, Hey, one day, you know, he ripped a couple balls right at guys. They happened to get fielded. They didn't go for hits. And then he started a new one the next day. Why do we, you know, not count those? Why do we not, why do we remember 56 much more than 72 of 73, which might be the more impressive feet if you ask me but like you said because you would only need to have like a 250 batting average it seems to me possible plausible at least that someone could run into this record again uh, at some point less so once you start adding in all of the extra things that the modern game of baseball has and you start realizing the reasons why no one's really come close to this it's bingo in a vacuum, it, it, you're like, well, sure, someone someone could do that, right? But um, 
yeah, and I know you know them. So if you drop any, I'll I'll be there to to help you out. But why don't you run us through some of those reasons why, Patrick? What because it's kind of, it's actually very similar to the Cy Young record. It's it's not just that no one will ever be as good at pitching as Cy Young. Some people have probably been as good at pitching, but they'll never win 511 games because the game isn't played that way. Yeah, the closest anyone has probably gotten. Uh, in recent memory and probably will get would have been Barry Bonds in 2004. Um, he had a 609 on base percentage. Did you hear me folks? 609. He had 362 on the season. And again, 362, you could do that over the course of a hundred games and have, you know, a couple of multi-hit games on, on top of it all. So it was in his fourth year of winning the MVP. And why didn't, Barry Bonds, you know, achieve such a feat and ultimately because he was getting walked with the bases loaded, <laughs> you know, that was the better option yeah. is to say, wow, this guy can, you know, score a run with a swing of a bat. Well, you know, if, if we throw him four balls, then we're just going to put him on first base and I'm going to look smart doing it. That's the thing is that now in baseball, there's an intelligence factor in the choices and decisions that coaching staff make up and because they've got evidence they've got proof that you right. know certain methodology is, is going to work if, if you give the guy a free pass whereas when we're talking about the 1940s there's so much pride in the game it's i'm going to beat you with my best stuff and i want you to bring <laughs> your best stuff also you know dimaggio simply did not strike out he he tid williams had really good numbers as far as striking out goes but you know, Joe DiMaggio is, is almost unheard of. He struck out 369 times in his 13-year career. That's what, you know, Mark Reynolds did in about two seasons. And, <laughs> you know, no knock on Mark Reynolds. True he's, talk. He's True way talk. better of a, of a ball player than I, I ever was. I mean, shoot, by the time he was 16, I, he was he probably already surpassed my abilities in my early 20s. But, but the point is, is that it was a different game. It was more about contact and, and it was more about trying to induce weak contact than you know trying to win a ball game with the three run home run so the game has changed so much now where putting the ball in play isn't 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 the most sound strategy anymore you know we'll, we'll get to ted williams and 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 the shift uh from the i believe it was yeah. the 47 world series but i mean listening that and, and and hearing what ted williams had to say and how he I was too prideful to just go the opposite way. Well, that's essentially what baseball players do now, you know, 70 years later. They say, well, no, I'm not going to change my swing. I'm just going to try to hit them over their heads. And thus begins the launch angle movement. So, you know, maybe someday we'll get back to that, you know, because baseball, I think, can be cyclical in a lot of different ways and, and always seems to adapt and adjust to, to current trends and things of that nature. And maybe it will get back to a more contact based game but as of right now it just seems even even if you get lucky one out of every four times and you, you put bat on the ball and it's a ground ball with eyes by the time you get to 40 now they're just gonna they might start just pitching around you and now it's it's even harder for luck to go your way because you're not even seeing a strike because some team wants to stop your streak Right, the, and, the, and look smart around doing it. Guys did, yeah. Guys did it to Todd Helton in 2000. You know, he got deep enough into the season, and it's smart, like you said. Like 
it, at some point, or to go the other way with it, if a guy is hitting 402 and it's September, maybe work around him, <laughs> you know, especially if there's two outs. And they talked a lot about how you just didn't do that back then. Like it was, it was just not, you know, and, and bunting was looked down upon all of these kinds of things. And so, yeah. Um, if there was shifting, uh, relief pitching is the other big gigantic one, right? If, yeah. if they could give DiMaggio a different look in his third and fourth at bats and bring in some dude hurling 99 mile an hour sinkers at him, like, it, it, it might have made it a little bit more difficult and and just the multitude of different pitchers you would have to p- face with different stuff and different arm angles uh, over the course of a season is just way more now and the big one that of course loomed over all of last episode and all of this one didn't have to hit against any black or or cuban or dominican players and you know that certainly was to his benefit the limited talent pool. Yeah. And that, that gets obviously talked about here and as we're dealing with the era of Jackie Robinson and um, the impact that it had had on various players from Satchel Paige to Josh Gibson, as we've been talking about for the last couple episodes, but it, uh, it, it makes it a lot easier when you're not playing against the best, you're just playing against the most privileged. And that may also be why, you know, Ted Williams record stands as it does. Part of the reason why, again, no one else is going to do that. But nonetheless, I loved this quote. I'm not sure if it was a, a writer or if it was just the narration again from the documentary, but he thought, talked and breathed hitting. Uh, that I think that pretty much sums up Ted Williams. We can move on. No, uh, <laughs> uh, I liked his own quote. When he said God could come down from heaven and he couldn't throw it past me, I thought that was pretty good. Um, but uh, why don't I jump into my my controversial take here? I, I threw the all of the <laughs> syllables into that one for it's it. a controversial. Colder day in, it's a colder day in Colorado, so we could use some hot takes. Warm us up, Drew. Warm us up. That's right. That's right. Is Ted Williams maybe kind of a dick? Now look. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, manscaped, I hope. Uh, now, now, <laughs> hear me out. No one's questioning his talent. Okay. But listening to some of the things he said, some of the things that were said about him, and some of the things that were said of his game, I got the sense that if he played today, now maybe this is more a comment on the rest of us than on him. Um, okay, he refused to take defense seriously. He basically told his teammate who was like, man, could you try to field the baseball every once in a while? I'm going to make more money than all of you put together. That was his response to you should play defense hard. I'm going to make more money than all of you guys. And I mean, he did to be, to be fair to, to his credit. He was right. I, I sort of get the sense that if David Dahl or Rymel Tapia said something like that after a bad defensive effort, uh, young earlier in their careers and responded that, that I, I, I don't think that the media and the fans or the coaches of today would, would take kindly to that. They even told a story about Ted Williams spitting on a guy. Now I knew he was always a fiery character on the diamond and those stories don't really get to me, but this thing about him 
I don't know, refusing to play defense hard and kind of telling people he was going to make a bunch of money. For some reason, that that kind of got to me in a in a weird way. What do you think? I'm overreacting. <laughs> no, uh, no, because you make fair points. You do you do make fair points, and I think you know it. Given maybe some different context, you know, you you might think a little differently. But he was very brash. You know, no no two ways about it. And you know, Babe Ruth said many things, probably you know, akin to that trash talking the president, saying. Hey, you know, I had a better year than him last year, so that's that's why I'm getting paid more money. Um, <laughs> Which is in, funny. <laughs> yeah. Incidentally, and I, I didn't get a chance to mention that one uh, on the, the last uh, or two innings back. Was that like I, I researched how much money he had made, and um, you know, he was making eighty thousand dollars that year uh, in I think 1930, and uh, adjusted for inflation, it's like one point two million dollars. So it's. It's not like he was getting paid twenty million dollars, uh, you know, relatively of that time. It was still, you know, one point two mil. So uh, it, right. it goes to show you how far you know we've we've come as far as what professional athletes make. But you know, for all of those things that probably make him sound like a bad teammate, you have to take a couple things into consideration: is that he didn't have a good relationship with the media, um, possibly because of some statements, you know, like that. Also could be, you know, if it had been taken slightly out of context or, you know, how it was framed. He had a very tumultuous relationship with writers. He called them uh, knights of the keyboard, um, you know, for the way that they were kind of holier than thou at times. Uh, you consider the fact what he, he did in service in World War II and maybe, you know, definitely more importantly in the Korean War. And you, you just see like how much he actually backed up the things that he said. Uh, John Wayne essentially made his career pretending to be Ted Williams. Like that's who he was in his films. I don't know if he said that exactly um, or if I'm just misremembering a quote from Bob Costas. I think that's, no, I think that's right. Yeah, that he was just, and, and there's, a, there's a resemblance too. Those, those two guys, you know, do look a little bit alike, but, um, you know, he, he, he backed it up. And I think maybe the most telling thing as far as, and you could, again, you can be, uh, to use your, your verbiage, Dick. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing you. So it's, it's not like I'm actually <laughs> no, saying right. it, Manscaped. but <laughs> hashtag um, is that, you know, what kind of a person was he at the end of the day? Yeah. Maybe he, he said a couple things that might've rubbed you the wrong way, but what did he do? when it mattered most. And he went to war twice. And in, I think it was uh, 1966, on the day that he went into the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, he stood up there and he stood before the crowd and he said, quote, I hope that someday the names of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson in some way could be added as a symbol of the great Negro players that are not here only because they were not given a chance. He did that when no one asked him to and no one needed him to. And so at the end of the day, I say no. He's he's not that. He he uh, he. Has All right, no. no look, you can be an American team. hero, a humanitarian, <laughs> a great spirit, and still be kind of a dick. I submit <laughs> that he is all of those things. Clearly, an American hero, arguably and probably the greatest hitter who ever lived. Um, much also- more important on on the social issues that so many other ball players 
great ball players that we love to turn into heroes got wrong, including somebody I used that word to describe, Kenneth Mountain Landis. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> I got the <laughs> Mountain Landis. Excuse me. Um, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Uh, totally wrong on this issue. So maybe I'm giving Teddy a little bit of a hard time for not trying hard on defense. I just, it was one of those things where it's like, you think of, you know, when, when old crotchety old people, when we were growing up talking about the game, play the game the right way, all these old guys, they played the game the right way, you know, and, and here's Ted Williams in the forties being like, I don't need to play defense hard. I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And you're like, I mean, I, Okay, <laughs> I guess he's right. <laughs> Everything about launch angle is what Ted Williams talked about 70 That's years right. ago. I think you don't like him because he was a former San Diego Padres player. Granted, is that what it is? That that was back when they were in the Pacific Coast League when they were a minor league team, but it, it could be that. It, it could possibly yeah. be that. But he was, he was neglected when he was a kid. I forget what his dad's deal was, but I know his mother was, um, you know uh, – heavily religious and you know worked at a lot of the missions in san diego in fact um the i guess one of the fun facts of this episode is that you could say that ted williams is a mexican-american ball player his mother was 100 percent mexican and although right. ted williams has these has you know he's the great all-american boy look his brother uh danny williams got you know kind of the genes of his um mother and i i he lived a very short life and you know, got into trouble and was kind of, you know, treated for, you know, by, by the color of his skin, not the, the content of his character, unfortunately. So um, treat, treat Ted Williams for the content of his character, not some of the <laughs> jerky things he said. <laughs> no, that's fair. I, I, I think that's fair. I think that's correct. And, and also uh, that he froze himself, which... I, I also have I don't know if he did, but he was well, frozen. <laughs> All right, how about this? Right. this? This could sway you too. How about this? In nineteen, so in nineteen forty-one, he led the league. You know, again, we know that statistics were weren't you know what they are now, but in forty-one, he led the league in most categories, including batting average, four or six, uh, on base percentage, and slugging. So he led the league in OPS. He finished second in MVP voting to, of course, Joe DiMaggio. All right, that's fine. Um, but the next year, he goes out, has an even better season. Um, similar war, right? But Joe Gordon wins it from the Yankees because they finished in first place, so you got to vote for a guy in first place. Um, Ted Williams had 2.7 more more than Joe Gordon. So it was 10.4 for wow. Ted Williams. Joe Gordon only 7.7. Brutal. And so, Some, yeah, he got, yeah. and, and here's a kicker, the guy who finished 21st in voting, which you're like, ah, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. Well, you know, getting a vote is, is important, has some value. Only 29 guys got vote in 1942, but the guy who finished 21st, Rick Farrell had negative 0.8 war. <laughs> so Ted Williams knew baseball. He knows it in and out. And he's got these writers that are just riding him so hard screwing him out of MVPs. He can't get back to the playoffs. He goes once, can't adjust to the shift. And just like that, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a rough road. But on the bright side, besides being in the Baseball Hall of Fame, he's also in the Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. So how about that? 
Yeah, well, there you go. Another fun uh, fact. So if you're gonna if you're gonna go fly fishing, which you probably shouldn't right now, although if you're out in enough area, that actually might be one of the things because you do that in pretty much in isolation, don't you? I'm very true. I, I haven't. Uh, not exactly a master of, if you, if you can't tell. <laughs> um, but I know the perfect thing you can do uh, to cheers Ted Williams and go fly flishing, flishing, and that's help out. Uh, our friends at the farmhouse over at Breckenridge Brewery, they need your help during this time and they can get your meal or your beer at the farmhouse right there for you. Use code DNVR and save five bucks off the meal. Uh, these guys are the absolute best. They they work their asses off. Uh, it's been a rough go for them, like a lot of people in the restaurant industry, but they're still serving meals out there. Uh, out there at the uh, Littleton location for Breckenridge Brewery. So call them today at 303-803-1380 from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. That's when they're doing their pickups. They will bring your to-go order out to your car for you. You can get food. You can get that 15-can sampler. They got all the stuff. Avalanche, Colorado Core, Hot Peak. I'm drinking the Vanilla Porter Jr. right now. And, of course, almost everyone's favorite, the strawberry sky. So make sure to get the, you can also find a, a Breck beer locator app to get Breck beer anywhere else. If you don't, you know, you're not lo- located close enough to the uh, farmhouse out there. You want to just go get some down at your local liquor store. Hopefully they're following all the guidelines. Davidson's is still doing uh pickup and delivery and all of those things. So, Get your Breck brew. Uh, cheers to Ted Williams for the unfortunate fact that he didn't win these MVPs and, and other accolades and the fact that I'm I'm being a jerk about it all these years after the fact. Uh, <laughs> this, this, this vanilla porter here is for Ted Williams, I'll say. Um, I like that you said, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, Drew. I'm going to say it is. Well, for for. The folks uh, listening at home, it was very intentional that you chose to say "Cheers," which was which was a show ah. based in Boston, where Ted Williams yes. played. I know you. I know you did that on purpose. Of course, come on. I <laughs> my I run that deep. My references just run that deep. I think I actually uh, drafted <laughs> Sam Mayday Malone in our fantasy fictional character draft last year with me. I believe that's. I believe that's correct. I think. I think I he might so. have been my closer. I needed a I needed a closer late in the draft. Uh, so before we move away from these two ball players, there were a couple other notes on uh, Jolton Joe that I had here. One, I really like this line. Uh, I, again, I'm pretty sure this, this was just narration written by either Ken Burns or one of the writers, um, remarking on the irony that a guy named or called Jolton Joe made everything look effortless. Mm. That it was this, you know, the, the idea that Jolton is this very spastic motion, but that the the guy was a very smooth ball player. Um, I enjoyed that observation. Uh, but I think maybe my favorite thing about that segment of it when they were discussing the hit streak, and I couldn't find his name. They didn't bring it up during this particular thing, and I don't think he came back up in the dock. I didn't go back and look. It was an older gentleman. Um, who was just telling a story about going into, uh, you know, barber shops or wherever, and people just asking, mm. "Did he get one yesterday? Did he get one yesterday?" 
um, not even specifying what they were talking about or who they were talking about, but everybody just knew. And he made this particular comment. And I love this because I don't know how much I talk about it on the podcast, but it's basically the reason why I love sports. And he said, we did that. And, and at first I thought he was just talking, you know, our team, our, our Yankees, uh, our guys are whatever. We did that. Okay. That's a collective feeling. I think a lot of people feel, but then he said, one of the human race did a marvelous thing. Hmm. And, and that really speaks to me. And I think that it, it, it explains why uh, I oftentimes have different reactions to when the Rockies blow a big one or, you know, whatever happens that my enjoyment of the game comes from appreciation for those who do it extraordinarily well. And that involves tipping your cap to them when you get beat. There was another writer who said, um, I think baseball is all about losing in the end. Talking Mm -hmm. about Ted Williams not being able to win the World Series and hitting 200, you know, the greatest hitter of all time in the most important games of his life. Couldn't get it done. Couldn't get a hit. And so you take these moments, whether or not you're a Yankees fan or a Joe DiMaggio fan or here in a moment, a Jackie Robinson fan or a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, that sports allow us to come together and marvel at what we are capable of just as a, as a human race. And, and that, that phrase human race was super heavy in the forties. It's, it's easy to say, Hey, we of the human race did a marvelous thing. And, and I thought, I thought that was the line of the documentary because we of the human race did the Jolton Joe 56 game hit streak thing. We did that, but we of the human race also excluded all of these people for over 70 years from getting to participate in something we called the national pastime. But then we of the human race did another marvelous thing and finally righted that wrong. Um, I just thought it was a very powerful comment on um, that when someone does something that special, it's not just like, Hey, way to go, Joe DiMaggio. Hey, way to go. Yankees. Hey, way to go. Yankees fans. When you do something on that level, it's like, look what we did. Like, look what humanity is capable of. I love that. I love it. That's, that's very poetic. And like you said, it's powerful. And I think you gave it even more power in its context when you, you know, see this entire inning as a whole and, you know, we'll, we'll get into all the, the Jackie Robinson stuff, but it it is very much something that I think brought, you know, people together at that time. Like, you know, did he get a hit? Just just like it, it brought, you know, the, the country together in 98. It's it's sad to think about it now, but, you know, anywhere you went, he would, he would ask, you know, did they hit a home run? Did one of them hit a home run? Did McGuire, did right. Sosa hit it? Um, nah. And it may have been less about, you know, the human race thing, but it was definitely about, you know, overcoming obstacles and, and just having an amazing performance, which um, nobody can doubt that, you know, DiMaggio did that year and, and throughout his career, because, you know, as he said, and, and this would be one of the reasons why you go, 
Yeah, Patrick, I hear what you said about Ted Williams, but let's compare him to Joe D, who said, yeah. you know, talk about why he plays so hard every single game. And it was, quote, because there might be somebody out there who's never seen me play before. Like, how many guys can you say that about in the game today? And that's no knock on on the current state of ball players because, you know, they need to take off days or they, you know, it, the, the season is a slog. And sure, there there might only be, um, you know, 10, 10 to 12 more games now than there were back when, you know, DiMaggio played. But even still, it, it's so hard to, to grind it out and to be your best and, you know, we know Mike Mike Trout's doing it because he seems to be getting better every single year. But you know, right. not not too many were like that with Joe. And we're going to see in the next chapter just how hard he had to play, and, and under what you know health conditions that were really, really gruesome. I don't know how detailed they're going to go into, but I know I'll get into it uh, uh, on the <laughs> next, on the next chapter. He'll fill us in. Yeah, yeah, I think another reason why you would like Jolton Joe because although he was very, you know calm and graceful he did love his coffee uh which is another reason why you should like him he uh a book i read about him uh, by richard ben kramer talked about how he would you know he like he just drank regular coffee but he would always have it like in a little cappuccino cup so that it would stay hot right because that's the worst part is you make a cup of coffee and the first half is like ah this is the best and then by the time you get to the bottom half you're like ah it's not it's yeah. not as warm, so he would like he would like for it to stay like piping hot. He was a very classy guy. It's one of the reasons why he got a very lucrative, um, you know, branding deal later on for the Mister Coffee Maker. Yeah, uh, uh, he, he would have loved Strava. He would have loved Strava. I'll tell you that. Mike. No, oh, <laughs> you know it's no, yeah, um, no. I, I think Lefty Grove summed up what you were talking about here when he said he knew he was Joe DiMaggio and he knew what that meant to the country. Um, there are a lot of guys, you know, for our generation, when we were young, very famously, Charles Barkley said, I am not a role model. Um, and there are a lot of great athletes who don't think of themselves that way. And I think there's a a fair and very difficult question at, you know, how much should we put on pro athletes? They said in the doc that there's like a history class that voted Joe DiMaggio, the greatest American who ever lived over George Washington. And you yeah. know, some of these other, like, look, uh, what, the are we going? Yeah. Yeah. We're going a little far here. Right. With some of this stuff. Um, but at the same time, uh, the, the, <laughs> you know, there, there was, I, I appreciate when somebody recognizes their importance to others. Um, Troy Tulowitzki, when he was with the Rockies, was often criticized. And I, I knew journalists and and bloggers who would kind of laugh at uh, fans who would criticize Troy Tulowitzki for doing things like not signing autographs or, you know, not really going out of his way to make time for the fans. And some players don't. And if you don't care that they don't, that's that's fine. But I I give extra credit for guys that do. So when they put this kind of back to back with Ted Williams saying like, I don't owe them anything but hits and lefty Grove saying Joe DiMaggio knew what he meant to the country and decided to live up to that. Um, I think that's pretty cool and profound. Not that you need to pit the two of them against each other. Uh, It's hard not. I mean, they're competitors and they're baseball players, so it's also hard not to. 
<laughs> it's just it's kind of what we do here, right? Um, and and there was one other thing that you had mentioned that I wanted to go back to also that you dropped in kind of the 1998 run for the the home runs, yeah. and I think that this comment that it is about what we can achieve is part of the reason why I personally felt so cheated when all the steroid stuff came out, whether it was McGuire and Sosa or later with Barry Bonds, another name you mentioned. And you said, so So, how much can I believe that he kind of challenged Ted Williams or that these guys surpassed Roger Maris and Babe Ruth? Because I wanted those to be moments where I go, look what we did. Look what we did. And now... You don't. And and I feel honestly, and maybe that's part of the reason. And I haven't even look, we're we're opening up wounds here on this podcast. We're talking about feelings. We're <laughs> we're addressing uh I think that's part of the reason why I'm so infuriated at the Houston Astros. It's not just the the cheating and like I've tried to stay like right on board with just what they did and, and what were the direct impacts of it but they also undercut an ideology I wanted to believe in. I wanted to believe that human beings, when wow. we get really smart and figure out a way to succeed, we can outbeat the big bad bullies with all the money. I liked the Houston Astros. I love the Houston Astros in a way. It was, I thought, a, a, the potential for a new era of baseball. And so that that, that their success is now, I think, has to be fairly under question. It, it gets right back to this quote in this thing, and and the guys hitting for fifty six games in a row or hitting over four hundred for a season. You want to be able to believe, wow, look what we did, and not, oh man, what did we do? That's that's huge. What you just said, because you you stumbled on it for anyone who might not understand why the Astros sign stealing scandal uh, in your estimation is the worst, not one of the worst. We can all agree it's definitely one of the worst, but why you put it at the top because it took away your ability to trust, right? It, 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 it broke something within you, your, your soul, your, your, I guess, you know, the, the way we, we look at the sport as, as being true. And sure, it had already happened in a way with the steroid scandal, but in in, in a way you you were able to get past that somehow. I think I think me being a little bit older than you, it those are guys who were in my wheelhouse, all those steroid guys, and that that crushed me. But the moment that that made me flip, kind of like you did, where it's like, oh, it's not. It's not humans doing it. It's not the human race doing it. It's it's something different, and, and it's it's really uh, broken my trust was when it came out that Alex Rodriguez had used performance-enhancing drugs because at that mm-hmm. time, you know, the Mitchell report had already come out. There had already been some sus- some suspensions, and the, the uh, Game of Shadows had already come out about the Balco scandal with Barry Bonds, and it was like, all right, we know this has happened, but we're we're trying to get past it. We're trying to get to the next generation of ball players and and you know and get through this. And then when it came out that a you know a guy 
that was at the top of the game playing for the team, playing for the New York Yankees right next to the most upstanding and wholesome guy, so to speak, in Derek Jeter, it's that was the moment for me. I go, oh, they, they're all cheating. And, and again, we don't know how literal that is or not, but it's like, oh, they, they've all done it. And it, it doesn't matter. Where do you draw the line? I don't know. It, it clouds absolutely everything. And that is the saddest part of our generation is, is having that cloud. Now, we've, we've talked about it the whole series is the clouds of what if for Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio since they didn't play predominantly against the Negro League stars. But you can talk about Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio with the greats that came before them and the, the decades that came after in, in a much easier light because those the, the clouds that surround them aren't of suspicion. It's just a what if. And right. they shouldn't be penalized because Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio didn't keep African-Americans out of the, the game of baseball. Right. That, was, that was beyond their control. But the Astros, but McGuire and Sosa – those guys, yeah, they made a yeah. very specific choice. And now we can't say, well, who's a better home run hitter? Ted Williams or Mark McGuire? Well, all right, well, you know, Ted Williams is going to hit for average. Well, McGuire did a lot when he was younger in the late 80s. And you, you kind of just don't even bother. We know, we know yeah. what those guys did. And it just takes the, the air you know, out of our sails as far as talking about the guys that we saw and loved growing up with to try to essentially to try to put them on a pedestal. As far as ball players go, we know as human beings they're all flawed in different ways. But as ball players, it's there's just a cloud of suspicion, and even more, what if? Yeah. All right, let's lighten the mood just let's, a little bit here. <laughs> please, uh, let's save us, Drew. Um, I have always loved that the commissioner who followed Landis was named Larry McPhail. You, you don't want that. <laughs> McFail? Uh, how about McSucceed? Could we try to get, get, let's get that guy in here to do some stuff. Um. The interesting thing about Larry McPhail, um, you know, as, uh, you know, one of the top executives in MLB is that it's, he and his son are, are actually both in the Hall of Fame. I would have to venture to say they're the only father and son in the Hall of Fame. There's definitely no father and son ball players. Um, it would just be executives and yeah. his, his entire family continues, you know, to work in, in baseball. Andy McPhail was the GM of the twins and Cubs. Yeah. Um, he even has a great grandson that I found out, uh, Lee McPhail, the fourth is a scout with the Mets. So it's like, you know, that's the family business for the, for the McPhails who Mick succeeded, as you said, uh, a few times. They did Mick succeed. But it's baseball. So everyone Mick fails three times (laughs) out of 10. (laughs) And then you get into the Mick Hall of Fame. (laughs) And speaking of commissioners, um, Happy Chandler was uh, the guy who was singing, you know, take me out to the ball game. That was, that was so beautiful. I, you know, I, I know, I knew the name Happy Chandler. Of course, he's in the Hall of Fame with, I think every, um, Every commissioner of baseballs is enshrined in Cooperstown, but seeing him so sing far. so far, that's right. It's, everyone Excuse that me. is not an active commissioner is in the hall of fame. Um, so Rob Manfred will be there eventually because 
There's a 100%. There's a 100% rate. <laughs> Sela got in already. Mostly. So, Damn. Um, but yeah, Happy Channel, I thought that was interesting. He was like 91 years old when he passed away. So that he must have sat down to film this with Ken Burns and, um, you know, passed away, unfortunately, soon after that. But he's a guy that from this, ch- this ending, from this chapter, I want to learn a little bit more about. You know, a Southern guy who's happy, who's educated, you know, came about during the time of, of Jackie Robinson. He's, uh, he's definitely somebody on my, um, you know, biographies to read list. Yeah, I, I got to learn more about him. I honestly don't know much at all. I just, you got to appreciate anybody whose nickname is Happy. <laughs> That's, you don't come by that by being, well, as I put it earlier, all right, we'll move on from the manscaped Ted Williams terminology. Um, <laughs> while we're talking executives, one other one that got a shout out uh, at the end there, telling the story about going to see Babe Ruth on the day before he died, Colorado. Ford Frick. Is that true? I didn't know he was from Colorado. That's what my mother texted me. So. <laughs> Ford C. Frick. Interesting. So, so if she's wrong, uh, that, that's on her. What, was well, I supposed to fact check stuff before coming on here and reporting it to people? Well, if mom says it's true. Yeah. Um, Not fact checking my mother. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I'm seeing something. I'm seeing Colorado and Colorado Springs mention you know, uh, throughout his biography and, and he played ball in, in Colorado Springs. Oh, he taught English at Colorado Springs high school and Colorado college. Did not know that Barbara Creaseman coming in Ford Frick. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he was a writer first. So it's kind of interesting. I don't know all of the paths to, um, the commissioner's office. Of course, Kennesaw Mountain Landis was, um, a traditional, you know, justice, a traditional judge, um, and you know, Bud Selig, we know was, was an owner, but Fort C. Frick was originally a, a writer and, um, was Babe Ruth's ghost writer. And as you said, was one of the last people to see Babe Ruth alive. And as we'll learn in, in future innings was the man who, um, decided that an asterisk was the best way to describe Roger Maris's feats as he couldn't let his buddy Babe no longer be the record holder. That's right. So now we turn to the big hero of this episode, of this chapter, of this part of the story, who was probably not using Mile High Green Cross just because it wasn't around back then. I'm telling you, he could have been. <laughs> could have been. Might have been into it. Who knows? Uh, but if you're into it, you got to get a part of their loyalty program. You'll get 20% off your entire purchase once per month. Uh, they're... Uh, doing all kinds of stuff to make sure that you're safe during these times. You can get your pickup there, following all the protocols. You'll be nice and safe. Uh, they accept hyper, uh, so you don't have to do a deliver of cash. Like that's one thing that, you know, a lot of, you know, who knows how clean that stuff can be. And it's something that I know a lot of people haven't really thought about, but some people you know, think about the cash stuff and, and it can be difficult with different dispensaries because almost all of them have to do the cash thing. One of the great things about Mile High Green Cross, they don't. So if you're at all worried about that, you want to get keep your payments digital right now, which is super smart, by yes. the way. Uh, they take hyper. Uh, you can 
get this whole thing done with very quickly. They've been set up to do the digital thing since before all of this. So they're not going to be all messed up by your order and not know <laughs> how to do it. Uh, you know how some people are like, oh, we've never done this before. So uh, sign up for the loyalty program, receive 20% off your entire purchase once per month. Offer extends to all current members. Um, so let's get in here and talk about not just Jackie Robinson. I feel like the story of Jackie Robinson is really the story of three people. And in most movies and, and dramatizations or documentaries, I feel like it's presented as such. So maybe that's why I feel this way. But of course, there's Jackie Robinson. Um, there is his wife, Rachel Robinson, who is 97 years old, still with us. She's amazing. Uh, born in 1922, just one of the greatest people uh, that we've ever gotten to have. And of course, Branch Rickey, who we've talked about uh, before in terms of the introduction of the farm system. And, you know, it, it is one of those things where I do feel like the movie 42 walks dangerously close to portraying him as the kind of white savior who decided I'm going to do a really good thing and I'm going to go find a black guy to play baseball out of the kindness of my heart and I'm going to we're going to solve this societal problem together where the documentary, you know, makes it very clear that he was an analytical mind and he'd come up with the farm system for all of these reasons, sort of the Billy Bean of his day. And it makes sense that he would look around and go, well, shoot, I, the, those guys are good. And no one's using them. I'm going to use them. And so it, it was maybe a little bit more cold and calculating, but certainly he was smart enough and kind enough to pull it off. And when you listen to the way Rachel talks about him, that always blows me away when she would talk about, they would yell these things at Jackie, but Jackie and Ricky would stay strong. She always included him in it. And so, you know, as much as you might kind of wince a little bit at, do we give him too much credit? Sometimes it, it really is the story of three people with the strength to show literally millions of people how stupid and ignorant and wrong they were. Yeah. As baseball fans get older and they learn more about the game as, as a child, they just learn that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. They don't know how, they don't know why, just why he was just so good. They, they could not let him play. And, and that's, that's the story you probably learn in elementary school. And you get a little bit older and you learn, no, well, there was, there was a person who had to make that decision to give him that chance. And he deserves some credit too. And, and that's true. And then as you get older and, and you read more and you watch documentaries and, and like you say, you just kind of look at it analytically that Branch Rickey was looking at it analytically and, and, you know, saw that there was, you know, market inefficiency in a sense, and that there was an opportunity there. You know, that it wasn't just entirely based upon a good heart because there's a lot more than that went into it. But you, you did hear that, you know, when when Richie, uh, Branch Rickey was, was a coach at Ohio Wesleyan University, that there was, you know, a black ball player on, on his team. And we saw that in a previous episode. It was, it was alluded to ever so briefly. And... Um, like a lot of the stories, they would go into different businesses, establishments, and they went to go into a hotel and 
you know, one of his players who was black was was refused a room. So, you know, Ricky thought on his feet and just said, "Look, just go. He can stay with me, right? I, I, it's my room. I have an extra bed. He can come stay up with me." And then, ultimately, when he goes upstairs, um, you know, the the players just sitting there crying and and just rubbing at his hands, and you know, just said, "It's this skin. If I could rip it off, I'd be like everyone else." And that's part of the seed I think that gets planted. And at the end of the day, if, if Branch Rickey doesn't do that, yes, someone else would have, but when? And right. would we would we've never had the civil rights movement? Or would it have ended around the time we were born? Who knows? But it's 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 a almost a, a I don't know if double standards the word, but it's it's a slippery slope. It's it's a hard line like where how much credit is deserved and, you know, how much do you just say, wow, great job. And well, wait a minute, you had some ulterior motives. It's hard. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's definitely not. Yeah, easy. Like a lot of this stuff, like all, you know, the Ty Cobb playing at the charity game, right. life is, uh, complicated and messy. And, but I, yeah, I, I think you're right. We, if, if his heart wasn't in the right place, he never would have been right. open enough to look at the analytics of it to begin with. Even the, the coldest, most calculated interpretation, the most cynical interpretation of what Branch Rickey did. If you've got hate in your heart, like these guys fought. And it's not just that it was the way of things. It wasn't just the natural order. By this time, maybe for some people, I think it probably was, you know, people saying, well, they've got their own league. But we talked about Cap Anson, and we've talked about guys who had come along before and been good enough to play and wanted to play, and they said, no, you can't. They fought, like, the first strike in baseball history came over a racism issue. And so <laughs> it's not like this was just, oh, well, you know, I, I guess we may as well do it. They Branch Rickey had to understand what he was throwing open. Um, and be all in as well. You know, there's the famous story of him telling Jackie not to fight back for three years. You're going to hear all of it. They're, they're wow. going to say the things and yeah. And just, can you imagine? And the strength that would take from both of them for Jackie, not to fight back for branch Ricky to have the gall to say that to a man who you cannot understand what he's been through. Um, but I don't they, know that, they had to have they had to have done it together, right? Yeah, I, I don't know if 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 I could have done it for the first three months of the season. So he says to him, three years, right? I don't know if it, if if I would have been able to deal with all right at the All Star break when we get back, you know. So first three months, no, he had to go three full years. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's that's. that's ridiculous and you know we saw how john mcgraw you know had these list of players and even even tried to you know slide some players in from in latin america to get into play and it it, it couldn't be done so you know there were folks that try and and you know i don't it, w it would be nice to know who tried and, and who did what but at the end of the day you know it, it it doesn't really matter that much you know i think there's a lot of other stories that are way more important in, in hearing as far as, you know, baseball goes and, um, and segregation and things of that nature. But yet yeah, it, it, it took the right person, not just in Jackie Robinson as a player to turn the other cheek for three years, but it took the right 
baseball person, the right executive to do something like this and to almost act as the middleman between, you know, the manager and the players, because some of the Brooklyn Dodgers players even tried to sign a petition saying, no, we're, it's, it's not going to go down like this. He's going to take, start taking our jobs and this is going to happen with more of the African-American players. So Ricky had to, had to make it good for manager, coaching staff, players, as well as everybody above him, the, the other executives across the game and the commissioner and the owners to say, look, this is something positive. I'm sure he probably, as you said, you know, really talked up the, the benefits of the, of the, you know, their pockets, right? Pockets are going to get a lot fatter. And, and we saw that immediately once Jackie showed up in Brooklyn that, you know, half the attendants were, were African-American fans. So it took the right person to get the job done. And, and thank God it, it, it finally, finally happened on, on April 15th, 1947. Yeah. You know, it was, it's actually Mario Cuomo of, of the Cuomos. Uh, <laughs> we're back in the news these days uh, in this documentary uh, talking about how, you know, this just felt so tragically late, how it was, you know, let's all give ourselves a pat on the back, but you know, what the hell yeah. was wrong? And I hundred percent feel that there's also something to the rest of the country lagged behind by another 20 years, George will, uh, who, who's always been a really interesting columnist whose work I've enjoyed very rarely agreed with, but often enjoyed, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, again, a, a great baseball writer, a great baseball mind, um, uh, you know, sort of talking about uh, this sense of baseball as the great equalizer um, and and the what you do on, on the box score tells the reality of the day. And so on the one hand, it's like, yeah, it could have, should have, would have happened much earlier. And, you know, he went on to say he basically put Jackie Robinson and Martin Luther King on the same level, basically, that those are the two most important African-Americans in the history of the country is what he was saying. And that one of them was able to prove so through, again, that's sort of the theme of the episode. That's what sports do for us, right? They They show what we can do. And he even said like I'm playing for my whole race and I'm playing to prove that we're just as human as anybody else. And if we can play baseball, just the same as other Americans play baseball and other people see us, that may have been the single most powerful thing you could have done at the time to prove people are all the same. Baseball was so ubiquitous and so perceived to be fair. <laughs> That uh, he managed to Jackie Robinson managed to break the color barrier in baseball 20 years before we would break uh, segregation, um, some most of the segregation right. in our laws. Yeah. Yeah. And World War II was, was the backdrop for a lot of this because, you know, there were a lot of African American, you know, servicemen who were right there on the front lines and, you know, did a lot to for the advancement of our country, and and the question was asked: if if we're able to stop bullets, why not balls? And that kind of and and Jackie Robinson, you know, he's he served in in World War II, and and so he kind of experienced all this. And Buck O'Neill has the great story of 
you know, the guy refusing uh, at the at the gas station, refusing the the Kansas City Monarchs an opportunity to use the restrooms. And Jack is, you know, the the ringleader. He's like, I know how this works, guys. I've I've been through this way too many times. Unfortunately, that's all right. Just just take the pump out. We're not going to get gas here in that gigantic, you know, fifty gallon mm-hmm. tank. And the guy goes, all right, mm-hmm. just go, just go in, but be quick. All right. Cause I'm in charge here. Right. And you yeah. begin to realize that, you know, Jackie obviously is an educated man, went to UCLA. And, and as you said before, the way Rachel Robinson talks about not her husband entirely, but this civil rights leader and one of the most important Americans in our history. It, it's crazy to think that, that in the sport that we love so much of baseball, someone was that important. Like Babe Ruth is just, okay, hey, cool. He's a pop culture figure, whatever. But like Jackie Robinson is when you, when you talk about the most of people that helped shape America, <laughs> Jackie Robinson is in the top five. Yeah. Top, obviously top 10, but like top five even. Yeah. I, I I think so. I mean, Robinson, MLK, Washington, Kennedy, FDR. So, so you know, it's a kind of a list like that. Yeah, you, right. yeah. Um, and yeah, to think, you know, uh, he was an athlete, but he wasn't just that. And they talked about that too. How you know, um, Satchel Page being mad that that he wasn't <laughs> the first guy, and there were lots of other guys who could have done it. Certainly based on talent and skill. Uh, but you know, Jackie was incredibly smart and well-tempered and all of the other things that he needed to be so that he could go on to continue to be this ambassador. Uh, and his wife, again, to go back to the, the Rachel thing, like I honestly wonder if all of this would have blown up and we'd have been set back 10 or 20 years if not for the fortitude of Rachel Robinson, who probably had to deal with more crap than either Branch Ricky or, or Jackie Robinson, because they could, to some degree, you know, defend themselves a bit more. And they were out there on the field, sort of separated. She's up in the stands, watching games, getting the insults from people who were right there, um, dealing with it for years, having people come by the house. You know, it just what she had to weather. And the way she comes out of it with a, a positive spirit and optimism and, and, and a kind of glowing, uh, she, uh, I just, I love Rachel Robinson. She's one, she's, she's also one of the 10 greatest <laughs> <laughs> Americans who ever lived. Yeah. Not yeah, and, and the fact that she's, she's still alive at 97 after all of that stress that, you know, she had to go through as, as you said, when we were coming on 50 years that, Jackie Robinson passed away so that she's been, you know, on her own, still carrying that torch to this day. And I know her, her children, you know, uh, do the same to this day. And it's, you're right. You know, Jackie was, you know, had these ulcers and, you know, was, was having these, you know, internal health problems because of all the stress that he would, was going through, but then he would go out the next day and, and have three hits and it's like, okay, that was his way. Like you, I am more focused than ever. So like every every grain, every cell within his body, every fiber was focused on getting revenge the only way he could. And that was on a baseball diamond. Whereas Rachel had no outlet for that whatsoever. So I didn't know this. I just, I just looked this up. Maybe you did. Uh, this is according to ever trusted Wikipedia. 
Uh, I'll check the source. I've never heard of that site one. before. No, you've never heard, never heard <laughs> no, of the, the, never. the Wikipedia, I believe it is. Uh, in 2017, Rachel Robinson received the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award from the Baseball Hall of Fame. With this award, Rachel and Jackie Robinson became the first married couple to reside alongside each other wow. in Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame. Wow, yeah. That's pretty neat. Yeah, and then, that makes me think that, you know, Effa Manley, who was in episode five for Shadow Ball, we didn't get a chance to talk about her. She's the only she's the only female in the hall, right? Like there's an actual hall that you walk through that has all the plaques in, you know, chronological order. And then there's other ways that you can get in, like our, our good buddy Tracy Ringlesby, you know, who was the the JG Taylor Spink Award winner um, for writing. And now, thanks to the you know courageous you know acts of, of Buck O'Neill, there's an award with his name on it, saying you know you can contribute to the game besides just on the field. You know you can do it as as an executive, you can do it as a writer, you can do it as a broadcaster, and you could just do it essentially as a humanitarian like this. So I, I did not know that. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there that's... are there are other women writers too that. Um, Claire right. Smith being one off the top of my head who have been in there. So yeah, there's, there's a handful of, of women who are represented really well in, in the baseball hall of fame. Can you think of any others, Drew Segway? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that leads us to another interesting point in inning six of Ken Burns baseball. And that would be the all American girls professional baseball league. Yeah. The the league of their own, That's if, right. as it were. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- this whole conversation, of course, that we're having about, hey, look what we can do, and uh, an endless series of what ifs, and and breaking barriers, obviously applies to them as uh, much as anybody else. And how great was that footage? It is weird. Like, there's a weird. They they talked about this how they were expected to keep the um, appearances up and and wear makeup and wear dresses and that's not practical clothing for playing <laughs> sports. No, um, but there is something about the footage of them in those dresses and throwing. There's just something wonderfully aesthetically pleasing and amazing about it. I have to say, it was the colors too. I think that the was co- really. I, it was like yeah. the one team was green and the other one was like orange. And it was like watching like, you know, 1970s, you know, ALCS with, with like, you know, the, the Orioles and, and the A's and like the colors just, just popped. It was the dyes that they must've used on those uniforms. Yes, it must've right. been awful. Uh, if you didn't wash <laughs> it and you were sweating, that stuff just probably got in your pores. It was awful, but yeah, they, they, it was very aesthetically pleasing the uniforms. Um, and yeah, I did, I did a little more research because I, I, I don't know much more than a league of their own, which as it turns out is not a documentary. Hmm. Uh, I did reach out to Ken Burns and I said, how could you have overlooked Dottie Henson? You yeah. talk about, you talk about all American girls baseball <laughs> league and not even, not even her sister kit, nothing. So I no, it was not a documentary, <laughs> but yeah, it, it started with four teams. And then a year later, six teams, then in 46, eight, and then two years later, they had 10. So that was the, the max that they had for one year. They had 10 in 1948, and then it kind of went away, unfortunately. But 
yeah, the, those women are just gems and hearing them talking about the game and um, like the, the one just how she said, Oh man, I, I, I couldn't hit a, couldn't hit a P man. I, I, I couldn't hit it all. So I, I became a pitcher and just hearing them talking. It's like, those are human beings talking about baseball and we need more human beings talking about baseball, no matter where they were born, what, what gender, what, um, sexual preference they may have. It, it just doesn't matter. And, and right before that section, we, we learned that during world war two, during this time, you know, Joe Nuxall, uh, makes his debut at the Cincinnati, uh, Reds as a 15 year old pitcher, 15, that'll obviously never be broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shouldn't be, let's face it. It shouldn't be. Pete yeah, Gray. Let's not do that. And, yeah. <laughs> Pete Gray for the St. Louis Browns plays with one arm and he was not a pitcher, right? He was an outfielder. Right. He plays for one year. So that was kind of this overarching theme that again, you discovered at the, at the beginning of, of our conversation on this inning is that, you know, it's, it's about human beings. It's about the human race. What can the human race do to advance our race and, and how can we adapt and, and, and give people chances and opportunities because we, we all deserve that and we all need that. We all need to be able to root for one another. We're doing it right now as a human race and we're adapting and we're learning how to adjust to this. That's what we do. It's what we do as a species. We've, we've always adapted ever since we were apes. Uh-oh. I just, <laughs> just say something there, but we've always adapted and that's what we do well as a human race. And this, this entire chapter kind of, I think shows the best of the human race. Including one of the last things they showed as sad as it is at 42 years old. And you discussed this on the last episode. Um, Satchel page mm. made his major league debut finally for a team with a potentially uncomfortable racially driven name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it had to be for the Cleveland Indians. Couldn't be for anybody else. It's like, nope. Ah, <laughs> couldn't get away from it. But uh, there he was out there throwing shutouts at 42 years old and winning the World Series. Um, and that is the last too time. Too little Cleveland. too late or enough too late or yeah, just. Yeah, way too little too late. Uh, it was a, it was the last World Series actually Cleveland has ever won, which I, I didn't realize. Obviously, when it was Cubs and uh, and Cleveland in in 2016, you know, both of them had it had been forever since either of them had won. But didn't put two and two together that Satchel Page was was on that Cleveland team. Definitely too little, too late. It's it's nice that he, you know, finally got to play in in the spotlight there. I think. You know, one thing that will be discussed in, in in the next inning is that even during the course of this time with Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, and and it should be noted, Cleveland had the first African American ball player that year, shortly after in '47, and Larry Doby, who's also in, enshrined in the Hall of Fame, is that right. not all teams got on board with that. In fact, it's one of the right. reasons why you know the National League won so many of the all-star games throughout the fifties and sixties is because, you know, the national league just got used to saying, yeah, well, no, let's, let's bring in more of these African-American ball players and then later Latin American ball players. But, you know, the Phillies were the last team to integrate and that was in 1957. They were the last national league team in 1957 and Philadelphia has a lot of racially charged 
It's racially charged city. Um, less so, less so in the, in the, the modern age. Uh, we're going to hear when we get to Kurt Flood a little about what Philadelphia has to do with you know uh, another black man going and playing there. But the final team to integrate in all of baseball was a team that had the opportunity to be the first, and that was the Boston Red Sox. We learned that Jackie Robinson was one of a, a group of players to you know, have a tryout at, at, at Fenway Park. I think Willie Mays even later on got a tryout at Fenway Park, but, you know, the Red Sox have, you know, were, were, you know, run by some, you know, very, very racist folks, including, you know, Pinky Higgins, who uh, I, I think he was the one in, in, in 42 who was the manager who was shouting all those, you know, racial epithets at Jackie Robinson, played by Alan Tudyk of Dodgeball yeah. fame. But yeah. they've Red Sox finally integrated in 1959, 12 years, 12 years after Jackie Robinson with uh, a gentleman with the interesting name of Pumpsy Green. Huh. Yeah. Pumpsy. Yeah, so, that so while some people were got the clue and got the hint of like, yeah, let's let's kind of change the way we we do business, both financially and both ethically, Boston, you know, didn't get that memo until 19. 19- 59 yeah it's pretty brutal especially as as you point out it, it was being proven you know in the all-star games or like uh, uh, to go back to our previous conversation you you look sideways when satchel page says he won 2000 games and you just go no you made up a thousand of those at least but then the guy comes to the major leagues at 42 years old and shuts out the White Sox a couple of times and helps his team win the World Series way past his prime. And you just go, well, damn it. But <laughs> pitching shutouts in the major leagues, it, 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 if there ever was a bigger symbol that you'd done messed up humanity and baseball and everybody involved here, um, you would think that would have opened people's eyes. Like how clear could it be that if at that age, of course I'm looking at it through modern, you know, sure. a modern lens, even now though, at 42 years old, um, Nolan Ryan, that's it. That's, that's the end of the list of guys who were throwing like that at that age. If we're um, talking about guys who didn't use performance enhancing drugs, oh, if we weren't, sorry, we Roger, throw, sorry, Roger, we could throw in the rocket. <laughs> yes. Um, but even at 40, yeah. 45 and 46 years old, he was an all-star two time all-star with the, with the Browns at 45 and 46 years old. Again, we know yeah. war didn't exist, but you got to think talent evaluators could see, Oh shoot. Hey, this guy's pretty good. 3.5 war, 3.0 war at 46 years old, actually finished 17th in MVP voting in, in 1952. So steps away after his age 46 season. And I imagine some of that could be to the fact that, you know what? He, he might've realized he could have made more money still barnstorming at that time. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe he wasn't offered. He, maybe he wasn't offered a job, but as we talked about in the previous episode, um, in 1965, he came back for one start, three innings of shutout ball at 58 years old. Wow. Absolute legend. Yeah. All right. I think that is going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, hopefully everyone has been following along with the hashtag DNVR 
watches. We will pick it up with inning number seven next Tuesday. Uh, just going to keep going through these at 5 o'clock p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's mountain time for those of you not in the uh, time zone out here with us. And, uh, you know, anything we missed, let us know. There's, I know every time we do one of these uh, and we keep going so long, but I think, oh, man, we could have talked about this a little more and that a little bit more. So hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or through email. Best way to make sure that we see your comment or question is to leave it on the podcast itself on the site. Subscribe to the DNVR.com to make sure that you can leave comments and do all of that good stuff. Be on the lookout for all of our articles and merchandise. Uh, remember that if it is within your means to help out our sponsors during this time, helping them out really does help us out. So drink your Breck Brew, get your Bojos, make sure you're nice and manscaped. Uh, and, uh, just, you know, continue to be safe out there. Uh, please continue to stay home, be smart, uh, take care of each other. Uh, we all owe a responsibility to each other in the end. So thank you all for continuing to be all of those things. We will continue to be Patrick Lyons and Drew Creaseman. And until next time, we will see you at the ballpark.